0: Industry Focus. The podcast that That dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard! Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. I'm Nick Seipel. Joining me today is Molly Fool analyst, Buck Hartzell. Our special guest is Lawrence Cunningham. Professor Cunningham is the author of two dozen books with his latest book being Quality Shareholders How the Best Managers Attract and Keep Them. In addition to his writing, he serves as a faculty member at the George Washington University School of Law as well as consulting on corporate governance and has and serving on the boards of directors of numerous public and private companies including Constellation Software where he currently serves as vice chairman. Lawrence Cunningham, welcome to Industry Focus.
1: Wonderful to be here.
0: Thanks for joining us, Larry. We appreciate you taking the time.
1: Always a pleasure to be with you, Buck, Buck and the Martin Fool crowd.
0: Yeah. yeah, uh, Larry, you mentioned, mentioned your writing. You, you've been writing about Warren Buffett and compiling his letters for a number of years. He just turned 90 over the weekend. Uh, you know him personally. Just kind of a fun question off the bat. What birthday present do you buy for a guy like Warren Buffett, a guy who has everything? <laughs>
1: an a share uh i'm just kidding he he's trying to get rid of his a shares but i you know i th- i think he appreciates substance so i'd you know I'd, I'd send him a book uh and i think uh you know it, just a little note about the uh, the legacy of uh intelligent investing that he's uh handing down that is you know it's widely followed uh probably still not by enough people but I think that's probably uh, the thing that's been most important to him is, is that he's provided uh, education for, for people. I think that's the thing that's nearest and dearest to his heart. I mean, other people think he's a great investor, a great manager, a great philanthropist. I, I think all those things are true, but I, I think he's probably most proud, really, of having been an educator. And, and uh, so I'd, I'd give him a book uh, and, and just remind him of the legacy he's, he's created.
2: That sounds like a great idea. I might get him a PowerPoint person to help him out with the next annual meeting. <laughs> it's clear when somebody put those PowerPoints together by himself.
1: <laughs> those slides were great. My favorite one was, I think it was an estimate of the national debt in 1812 or something like that. It said, Estimate W. Buffett. <laughs> yes exactly. as, a, as the source had to I had to get the source in there for sure <laughs> <you. laughs>
2: oh that's great um so yeah, let's talk a little bit about there's been some great things that are going on at Berkshire Hathaway and some changes um, that have gone on I guess the most recent one is he's on his around his 90th birthday he announced the deal he's investing in Japan so he's got kind of a basket approach going into a bunch of these um, kairetsus in, in Japan and um, any thoughts on that investment? We know, you know, he said in his release that he borrowed some money um, in in Japanese currency there at about one percent. If you look at across those stocks, they're yielding about five um, percent or so, four to four to six percent. What do you think? Uh, why? Did, what got him interested? Is this classic Buffett looking in an out of favor sector, or is there something other
1: we should read into this
2: with inflation? Uh, that
1: uh, and I, the thing that I that jumped out at me is is Berkshire historically has focused almost exclusively on the United States, some exceptions in uh, Germany in the insurance sector, uh, exception for an Israeli manufacturing uh, business. Uh, They bought a small German uh, motorcycle uh, supply business five or seven years ago. And obviously, the subsidiaries tend to operate globally, Uh, but uh, this is really the first significant investment that Omaha has, that is Warren's, uh, portfolio has, has done outside the United States. That's what struck me uh, as most significant about it. And, and Warren has always attributed that, uh, domestic bias to his circle of competence saying, look, I, I don't know enough about economic, uh, context of, of European or Asian businesses or, or the, the governance, uh, systems. And, so I thought it was a remarkable pivot or or uh, signal that that he's he's become comfortable. He's he's learned uh, about uh, a, a different uh, business culture, and and I have to say, you know, the Japanese business culture is radically different from the the North American uh, culture. You know, as you said, the five companies are all members of, of Kiritsu's these these complex conglomerates with interlocking ownership uh the the culture uh of, of business in in japan itself it, it it's a very uh inward looking very domestic kind of uh uh culture uh so it, you know he, he's obviously saying you know he's not uh, violating his circle of competence. he's signaling that he's learned a lot about that economy that culture this, this set of businesses uh and so I th- i think that's quite important about it but Obviously, your, your points about um, about there being value here and, and, and being able to even leverage a little bit uh, is, is is interesting. Uh, and I, I get the feeling these are Warren's moves. Uh, it, you know, many of his recent moves have been attributed to uh, Todd Coombs and Ted Weschler, yeah. uh, especially the Apple position. Uh, but uh, it sounded to me, and, and they're not always entirely clear about who's making what decisions. But it sounded in this release that this is something that, that he uh, has been involved with and, and thought about. So I, I think that's uh, you know, and there's much more to say. So but but about that aspect of it that you know, Berkshire goes abroad or goes to Asia. And, and, yeah. Yeah, that's 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 bold. I think. It that's, is it is something
2: that I don't think most of us that follow Berkshire would have suspected. If you had us write down five or six stocks that Warren Buffett was buying, at, you know, after COVID or even before and during, we probably wouldn't have picked Japanese companies. So uh, it's great, 90 years old, he's still surprising us, and um, I'm sure it'll turn out to be a pretty good value. He knows a thing or two about investing in uh, financial companies. So yeah, it should should turn out okay. Um, want to ask you quickly, um, Bill Ackman is a guy who's a, a well-known investor, kind of a swing for the fences guy. He had a big stake in Berkshire Hathaway, but only briefly, and he sold out of it pretty quickly. You wrote an essay about that, and um, maybe it ties in well with the book that you're coming out this fall. But um, you know, what are your thoughts on on Bill Ackman selling out of his Berkshire Hathaway stake? And was was Warren really crying at home when he heard that Bill Ackman had left the fold? <laughs>
1: Well, I should first say that I, I know Bill uh, and like him. I've known him for a long time. He, he was one of the, uh, he was present at the symposium that I did with Warren on his letters 25 years ago. So mm-hmm. I, I admire him and I, I think he's, um, he, he and, and his brand of investing can play a useful role in, in, in promoting managerial accountability uh, and so on. So my, my comments on his position in Berkshire are not, not personal at all, but yeah. I do think that, uh, as a style, it's it's not the Berkshire style of investing, either the kind of shareholders Berkshire wants to attract or the kind of shareholder Berkshire wants to be. Berkshire wants to attract and wants to be a long-term committed shareholder. That is one that uh, uh, loads up, that it doesn't diversify widely, but, but focuses on individual companies. Uh, Berkshire's gotten pretty diverse in its portfolio just because of the amount of money it has, but it's still. it's pretty concentrated in, you know, it's huge bets on six or seven companies, and, uh, is that that kind of conviction is something Warren has always practiced and, and always wanted in his share, in his shareholder base. He, he, he brags a lot about how concentrated his largest Berkshire shareholders are. That is, the, the Berkshire holdings are are, are their largest uh, position by far uh, compared to the second or third. And very many of those shareholders have owned Berkshire for 10, 20, or 30 years. So that's the kind of shareholder he wants. That's the kind of Berkshire, Buffett want. That's the kind of shareholder uh, he's always been. And you're right, I call that the quality shareholder to distinguish both from the indexers who may be long-term but are totally diversified. On the one hand, the short-termers who who may load up but never stick around. Uh, and, and Bill, in this, in this case, you know, will, will very often be in that that latter category. Um, now he's doing something else. He's usually trying an activist position and trying to nudge management or push management in a new directions. So he's adding a different kind of value. But I, I, you know, I knew Bill was a Berkshire shareholder. I've, I've seen him at the meetings and everything. Uh, but it, it, Bill, it, it, Bill is not the typical, the 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 quintessential Berkshire shareholder. So yeah. the fact that he dumps, that he sells out, uh, no, again, no offense to Bill, but I think that increased the average quality of the shareholder base rather than decreased it. So I considered it. Positive for Berkshire.
2: Okay. okay, yeah, yeah. And one thing you mentioned, kind of long-term shareholders. and There's certainly people that have owned Berkshire for for decades, three, four decades or more. Um, but the people that are kind of relatively new, I'm saying in the last decade or so, Berkshire hasn't performed that well, certainly relative to the S and P 500. And I and I think for those of us who follow it pretty closely, you know, the, the S and P 500's been on a tear. It's been uh, technology stocks have done. Uh, unbelievably well, you mentioned Apple, probably the single biggest investment gain on a, on one stock, I think probably in the history of the world. I mean, he's probably up 85, $90 billion on, on, on one stock position, pretty good for an 89 year old, I guess at the time, or 88 when he made the deal. Um, but what are your thoughts on those those long-term shareholders that haven't been there for 40 years, but they've been there the last decade, and have seen relative underperformance. Do you think that changes going over the next five years or ten years? Um, how do you think about that?
1: Well, f- flash is has never really been Berkshire's uh, strong suit. You know, Buffett is a very folksy, uh, conservative guy. You know, very little leverage. Very little shuffling of assets. You know, just a, a permanent, quality-oriented guy looking for well-run businesses. Uh, you know, he's not. He's never looked. For the um, the stratospheric returns, he, he's always wanted a modest return, and you're right that the earlier decades uh, were were the best uh, for Berkshire, and, and they've just steadily uh, gone to average or close. Uh, and part of that's a matter of size. It's just much more difficult when you're investing hundreds of billions of dollars uh, to outperform. Uh, nevertheless, it's it's been a, a solid run. Uh, you know, I think you sleep well at night that decade. Uh, you, you, you certainly earned, earned the S&P or a little better uh, without, uh, without much risk. Uh, and so it remains, I think, uh, rewarding for that, that cohort. As, as for the next five or 10 years, we can be almost certain that the company will change significantly because Warren will almost certainly uh, leave the scene, whether uh, because he'll step back or, or worse. Uh, and so you'll have a succession and we'll get to witness the effectiveness of the succession plan, which is a very elaborate plan. I think it's the best possible plan they could have. You'll have Greg Abel probably take over as CEO, who's overseeing all the uh, the C- the other CEOs and the operating companies. Todd and Ted taking over as CIO, at making, uh, managing a portfolio and making equity investments. Howard Buffett will become chairman of the board as a, steward of the traditional uh, cultural uh, features of Berkshire, like permanence, autonomy, and and trust. And then in the shareholder piece, you'll see a gradual sale uh, of Warren's holdings um, over a period of about 12 years where um, his estate will transfer about 5% of his shares to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, which will then be required to liquidate it and make gifts. So over a 12-year period, you'll you'll see the company go from having a controlling shareholder to not having a controlling shareholder. So all of that, uh, by design, gives uh, that team, Greg, Todd, Ted, uh, and Howard, and, and everybody else, um, a, a little bit of a runway, uh, a little bit of time to prove that they can manage Berkshire uh, to those values and with at least the solid returns, the reasonable returns that have been achieved in the last 10 years. And maybe they'll do better. Uh, Greg is a savvy investor, a savvy manager. He's done a very good job investing capital at the energy companies for twenty years. You know, one of Berkshire's big invest biggest acquisitions in the past several years was a recent one at Dominion. Uh, that it's uh, you know Greg's baby. Uh, he's trained uh, excellent successors uh, uh, at the energy companies. Some of whom have moved around within Berkshire. The, uh, CEO of Seize Candies, um, appointed a year or two ago as a former Greg uh, uh, Proje. So I, I think I have a lot of confidence in Greg, but that's that's where the uh, proof will be. Can Greg, and obviously Ted and Todd have to help deliver too, but but that, that leadership I think is mostly going to be coming from Greg. Can he do it? I have confidence that he will, uh, and I think that structure will give him the time. If, if he has a bad first year, I think he'll get the benefit of the doubt. Uh, but he will have to deliver over five or seven, or else you'll start to see some of those quality shareholders drift away. <laughs> and uh, and some of the activists, maybe even Bill, uh, start creeping in. So uh, it's, I'm, I'm bullish. I, I'm optimistic on on Greg and on Berkshire on the value of this, this special culture Warren's built up. Uh, but obviously, I need a crystal ball uh, that none of us have.
2: Yeah, I think um, those of us that follow along, and I'm glad, you know, Greg was involved in this year's annual meeting and both him and Ajit in the previous ones a little bit, you know, those guys being promoted to vice chairman um, and giving them some face time with shareholders, I think it's really important at this level. I was happy to see it. I think one of the headlines that's out there a lot is Buffett's holding so much cash with whatever, $128, 130000000000 or whatever else. When you look at it historically though as a percentage of assets and in some other ways, it's not really out of line with the amount of cash that Berkshire's held. It's just the business has grown in size. I, I doubt though that the, the next the successors will get that pass. I think there's probably going to be a little bit more pressure on them. Do you see Berkshire ever paying a dividend while Buffett's in charge? or do you even see them doing it after
1: he's gone? Almost certainly not well while, while Warren is in charge, uh, and, and that's been part of the cultural motif of, of the company, uh, partly because uh, shareholders are almost all taxpaying shareholders. And so there, the, there is not a strong appetite among the quality shareholder base for a dividend. In fact, Warren pulled the shareholders twice, once in the mid-90s, I think it was, once in around 2012 or so. Uh, saying I don't think we ought to distribute cash dividends, but what do you think? And he got overwhelming support for opposing uh, dividends. So I don't think there's a strong appetite. There, 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 may be. There are obviously some people or some shareholders and, and activists may, may may like that kind of uh, liquidity, but but most of the holders don't have the appetite, and it's not been part of Berkshire's culture. Uh, and. Lauren uh, has uh, kept that powder, uh, kept it dry, and you know found uses for a lot of it. Uh, and I think Greg will do the same. And, and you're right, as in, in terms of the, the relative scale, it's it's not wildly uh, high. And the other footnote I'd add is that Berkshire has always said that it maintains a significant cash balance. Uh, to assure having liquidity to meet significant insurance claims if catastrophe strikes. In the past bunch of years, that number has been $20 billion. Uh, And the signals I got from his presentation at the annual meeting is that in light of COVID and potential second-order effects that we still haven't seen, uh, that number might need to be higher. So uh, I, I think it's it certainly in the near term, under Warren's tenure, uh, I wouldn't expect a dividend out of Berkshire. Uh, no, I do, I do expect, and you do see increasing share buybacks. Yeah. Yeah. we um, have seen
2: that. Yeah. Finally. And I think people have kind of, I think that was one of the things Ackman anticipated that was going to happen when the share price was below $300,000 and it really didn't happen to any big degree last year, but we've seen a little bit of a pickup with that and it seemed to be around 1.2 times book value or so. Um, which seemed to be the area that there's a little bit of interest there in buying back shares. Um, why do you think we've... He loves investing in companies like Apple, even IBM prior to that, that buy back lots of their stock. Yet he's been reticent to do it at Berkshire Hathaway. Even Washington Post, when he directed the buybacks there, had a lot of value um, You know, back in the 70s. Why do you think, is it? Is it part of the partnership trust thing um, is that the reason he hasn't bought him back? Because he clearly likes investing in companies that do
1: that. Yeah, that's what he, he's always said that he's conflicted about buybacks as a strategy at Berkshire. Because uh, if if they uh, if it's an attractive investment for Berkshire, so the price is below value, that means the sellers on the other side uh, are not getting uh, that kind of uh, great deal. Now, uh, his so he's he's got some conflict around that partnership aspect of his view of, of the holders on the other hand his remedy for that is disclosure is clarity, and appreciates that there may, there are times when even quality shareholders as i as i call them have to sell estate planning death in the family generational problems the, the health problems so um, i would say i think he ends up being prepared to do it as long as you know fair disclosure has has been made um, uh, and, but I think it is important to notice as you just did that this in 2020 the, the, the level is significantly higher uh, than in all of the past uh, several years uh, mine so I think that's notable uh, as a part of Berkshire's you know internal capital allocation yeah
2: yeah it'll be interesting to see what happens and the price has gone up too since then um, you know uh, since it was below 300000 dollars so quality shareholders I want to ask about that one more time and just make sure that people listening at home, I'm going to understand, how do you define a quality shareholder? We know it's people for the long term. Do you look at the turnover in the stock, the annual turnover? What's a way that somebody at home that's looking from the outside can say, I'm looking at this company, but I want to know if they have a quality
1: shareholder base or not? Yeah, that's a good question, Buck. Uh, and so I drew a, a, a matrix a sort of a two by two and looked at conviction and duration. And so conviction I'm looking for high conviction, high, high duration. And so conviction is measured by the relative concentration of a portfolio, an investor's portfolio.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, a concentration of, 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 at one extreme would be zero, where you know it's fully diversified. Uh, an index fund like Vanguard or State Street or Northern Trust or something like that. At the other extreme uh, concentration of clo- close to one would be only one stock. Hardly anybody does that, but a lot of firms and funds own 20 30 or 40 and that that's a fairly highly concentrated uh, uh, position and you when you look at uh, who does that so I did empirical research to identify which shareholders do that you know this is based on public filing so I don't I don't have individual human beings but uh, sure. and, you, and you see uh, Newberger Berman capital world Franklin uh, fidelity uh, and, and and some mostly s- smaller firms in, in, 100 to $300 billion assets under management. Uh, but so th- those are, conv- I, I call it high conviction shareholders. They, they do a lot of research. They study. Uh, they understand. Uh, they may even participate a little bit in, behind the scenes in, in shaping management. Uh, the other quadrant in there is duration. And here I look at average holding periods, turnover of the portfolio, a number of different metrics to try to identify which of those firms tend to have the longest horizon, the, the most Patience, the greatest patience. And again, you see there are lots of firms that are momentum traders and, and day day traders, arbitragers. You know, who whose average holding period is extremely short, months, maybe a year, uh, and and others that are more than four, five, or seven. Uh, doesn't get much longer than that most of the time. Uh, and so, uh, and these may have large positions. They may buy big, by itself big blocks, but over short periods of time. So I'm looking at the the shareholder base that does both of those high conviction, high concentration. So it's not the indexers, it's not the momentum guys, and I leave the activists out to one side. Uh, and so I identify who those uh, those firms are, and I, I discuss a little bit about their investment philosophy. And then I turn around and I look which companies attract that sort of shareholder in in highest density. And so again, I run a huge uh, series of of, of empirical uh, tests around. Uh, the Russell 3000, basically, and and then had 2,200 companies that I ranked in in order of quality shareholder density, and um, you know Berkshire's way up there at the top. Um, you know, you'll, you'll see the listing in in in, in the book. Uh, I don't I don't publish the whole thing because I don't I don't want to uh, make make any of these companies sticky. I'd, I'd like to see them trying to be more nimble, and also just as a matter of the, the data that obviously it changes day to day. So I don't want to put it, put it in in a black box, but I, but identify a lot of them. Uh, and then I try to figure out what, what is it about these companies that attract these, uh, this cohort and some of it's unsupposed of it's unsurprising. They tend not to do quarterly forecasts. They tend not to do quarterly conference calls. They tend to have very high quality annual meetings, annual shareholder letters. Uh, they talk a lot about capital allocation. They, um, they themselves emphasize uh, the long term in in their in their strategy and their discussion and their accounting measurements, uh, and on and on. We've got a lot of different. So uh, that's the method, and that's what I try to reveal for us sitting at home, the motley fool constituents. You know, I've done it. I mean, it's it's I, I did a pretty heavy lift. There's there's a lot of data in this, and, and I had experts, uh, uh, you know, PhDs crunch the data, but. You can identify which are the highest quality shareholders with a little bit of poor man's research, and then you can identify in which companies do they tend to invest, just as an additional filter. Uh, and then you th- you think harder about well, why Danaher, why Markell, uh, you know, why Graham Holdings? So, uh, and then and then just add that to your analysis. You still have to do the fundamental analysis, yep. but that's I think an a underappreciated. Uh, feature in, in investing. I think people have an intuitive sense that, and let me just add one thing, but so the other question is performance. And, and we, we crank, crunch the data again and see that the evidence supports the idea that a quality shareholder strategy can systematically outperform and that a portfolio comprised of the top, uh, you know, high density attractors outperforms. So. Not every company, not every fund, but it's not a bad uh, tool to add to your your investor toolkit. Uh, and, and again, the intuition is, you know, it, it ought to be the case that the, the, the quality of the shareholder matters to the performance of a company. It, it, there's got to be some influence. If you've got a bunch of short-term traders as a manager, you're going to be catering to those short-term traders. So you're going to miss out on a lot of long-term strategic initiatives and so on. Uh, but if you've got patient convict, uh, uh, convicted uh, high conviction shareholders, uh, you've got a runway and you can execute on those uh, strategies. So I think there's a lot of intuition around this idea and what we've done uh, is really try to put as much data behind it as we can uh, and then then explain it.
2: Yeah, that's great. and I think one of the things that the fool that we've seen over the years is that, Most people, there's a lot of false dichotomies out there. And one of those um, is that people thought if you invest in tech, you need to turn over and switch in and out of shares a lot more because there's disruption and things happen. And what we've actually seen as David Gardner is really the kind of pioneer for this at The Motley Fool is he's done the exact opposite of that. He's found really great companies led by people that think in decades like Jeff Bezos and Amazon, and he's held them for the long term. And what and it's crazy to me, but we, we see this from people all the time. They have a stock that does well, it goes up 20%, 30%, or 50%. They're like, I've got to sell this. <laughs> and we're like, what you don't want to sell out of what's doing really well if it's led by great people and the company is executing on that, let them roll. You know what I mean? And if they happen to stumble or if something happens temporarily, go ahead and add to that position. You know what I mean? Um, and it's just it's a hard thing innately for investors to do is to hold on to the winners. They kinda of want to sell them off to lock in those games. But
1: I think Dave does uh, deserve a lot of credit for that. That it takes a lot of discipline what what he's yeah. done. And I think he's been proven out. He's been vindicated by yeah. the strategy. And I think you mentioned Jeff uh, Bezos. So I, I think uh, Amazon and Jeff in particular exemplify what uh, what quality shareholders are looking for. And a- Amazon has attracted them in high density and you 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 can see why. I mean Jeff has always talked about you know, that day one thinking. His 1997 letter to shareholders just just hit everybody over the head about, this is going to be a long-term play, you know, and it took a long time. Yeah, But if you stuck with it, uh, I mean, it's an extraordinary uh, set yeah. of returns, and, and it's more to come.
2: Yeah, yeah, and, it, and it's just, you don't hear that often from the tech area as well either. Uh, I to want to make sure that um, Nick gets some questions in here as well. I want to ask one more quick question though. Tesla and Apple split their stock recently. Um, we know Warren has talked about stock splits. We've talked about them a lot to people. It doesn't really make that much of a difference. What are your thoughts on does that help them attract quality shareholders or the opposite kind?
1: It has the opposite effect. Buck, you're right. That one of the one of the research elements we did for the book that when we when we try to figure out what are the things that companies do to attract long-term uh, convict, uh, convinced uh, high-concentrated shareholders uh, is avoid splitting the stock, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's I think pretty obvious to see why the reason Apple and Tesla are splitting the stock, the boards the company have said is to attract new investors. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what that's going to do is going to attract a lot of short-term investors. It's going to induce sales by some purchases by others, and then. Continued volatility and in, churn, in, in uh, and we flipped it around. If you look at the stocks, of companies with the highest share prices, Berkshire is obviously in the past by itself with six figures. But they're only about ten. They're about ten or fifteen. Last time I looked, that have four-figure stock prices, um, including, including Apple, Amazon, uh, Alphabet, uh, and then some some others uh, that are less well known but but equally uh, important. They have very high quality. Shareholder basis, and and it's because it's harder to sell. For, right, uh, you know, and and the other signal it sends is that we're not focused on the stock price here. We're focused on running the business and, and generating high returns on invested capital. If the stock price is a little high, a little low, or it gets way out of sight one way or the other. It doesn't really uh, bother. Doesn't influence our strategic thinking day to day. And so I'd rather have a board of directors thinking about capital allocation. Should we make this acquisition? Should we make this share buyback than thinking, what if we had the stock price about a fifth less, you know, or half, half, half off? So I I think it's a bad idea uh, for both Apple and and Tesla, uh, you know, certainly in terms of quality shareholders. Uh, They may not care. (laughs) They they may have other uh, priorities uh, like, Someone said Apple is trying to use a a low stock price to uh, attract customer loyalty and affection. Maybe that's right, but it's not how I think about it. So from a quality shareholder perspective, the quality of their shareholder base will will decline as a result of the splits. That's what all the evidence suggests.
0: So, so, I want to link this quality shareholder concept with what we talked about earlier when it comes to succession um, at, at Berkshire, you talked about Amazon's ability to recruit uh, uh, quality shareholders, how important Bezos' annual letter is to that messaging to shareholders. How significant is the, the presence of a founder leader uh, at a company when it comes to recruiting quality shareholders? And, and how do the companies that have been able to maintain quality shareholder bases through a succession cycle, what, what do they do? How are they able to achieve that?
1: Oh, it's, it, that's an excellent question. And the the inventory there is mixed. Uh, we, we did not find a, a strong correlation with a sort of distinctive founder and, and high quality shareholders. And that's, I think when, when you look at individuals, you know, some are more trustworthy than others. Some have a longer term horizon than others. They, they tend to attract to use an old phrase, the shareholders they deserve. And so those who are, um, uh, long-term thinkers and strategists uh, do, do tend to attract, and I think their presence and their personality matters. Jeff is a good example. Mark Leonard at Constellations, an example. Um, Don Graham at Graham Holdings, or formerly the Washington Post, as uh, a good example. Tom Gainer at Markell. Uh So there's there's certainly that. Uh, I could I could list another group of CEOs that are in some ways luminaries um, and founders and so on, but they they haven't exhibited a similar Disposition, and, and, and you know, I'm, it's not criticism. They they just have a different approach, a different outlook. Uh, they're not interested in the long term necessarily, and they're not interested in, in attracting any particular sort of shareholder. Um, on transitions, it's it's it's, it's also a, a very interesting uh, story. I highlight two in in the book. One of them I already mentioned is Graham Holdings. It used to be the Washington Post. Uh, that business struggled mightily as print gave way to the internet uh, and it, it spun off a cable operation and it, and it really morphed into, into quite a different business. Um, and, and then uh, Don Graham stepped down as chairman and CEO and uh, handed the reins over to his his son-in-law. Uh, a huge change in, in what the company is and who the leaders were. But what happened is, uh, and what happened to the shareholder base, it was an extremely high-quality shareholder base, including Berkshire Hathaway and a lot of, the, a lot of followers of, of, of Warren and that tradition. As this transition um, uh, uh, got underway, uh, that, that broke up, and, and those quality shareholders started to leave. And, and you can see it in the stock list year, year to year. Uh, but they've actually figured out they're gradually coming back. As, as well. So they've, they've, they've managed through the transition, I think, relatively successfully. And another example is Luc- Lucadia National, uh, Ian Cummings and Joe Steinberg's company that they built up over a period of 30 plus years, uh, applying tra- traditional value investing principles, a little different than, than than Buffett's, a little more opportunistic, a little more of the old-fashioned uh, cigar butt. Uh, they'd sell uh, businesses uh, relatively quickly, but they were uh, authentic in, investors who explained their position, who understood uh, capital allocation and, and educated their investors using um, uh, excellent communications, especially an excellent shareholder letter. And they attracted a high density of quality shareholders. Uh, now, they got to the end of their run about five or so years ago. and They engineered a very interesting uh, succession plan uh, through which they, they essentially sold themselves to Jefferies. Uh, the New York-based investment bank, very different kind of business. Uh, and what you so and what you saw after that transition was a disruption in the quality shareholder base. You saw a lot of quality shareholders stick with. It, I think saying, look, if that's what Joe and Ian think, and, and not just blind faith, but Joe and Ian explain the rationale why Jeffries is attractive, why its leadership understood Lucadia, why you can count on continuity around. Some of their uh, their rationale, uh, the the rationality of their capital allocation, and so on. So a bunch of quality shareholders stuck with them, but others left. Uh, And in the same way with Graham's Graham Holdings, I I think that the merger, the the sale has has has. I don't think it's proven out completely, but it's a lot better than a lot of people thought. And so you see um, somewhat of a migration back in. So those are, I think. Fascinating stories. I explore some others in the book around successions at, at Progressive okay. Insurance and, and some others. But, but Nick, I, I think it's a profoundly important question. I think that the the leadership is certainly a big part of of, of attracting long term uh, high concentration shareholders, and when that changes, people get worried, and that's going to happen to Berkshire Hathaway. Um, I I remain confident that, that that transition will be a little easier than either Graham or Acadia, uh and that will. Uh, it'll it'll prove out uh, but they're they're you know quality showers are not stupid you know and they're not religious I mean,
2: yeah you know, yeah
1: but, you know if 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 this is not going to continue to be a worthy company they they will sell
2: yeah and Lucadia and Jeffries has struggled i mean from a business performance wise they haven't grown book value in a long time um rich handler and Group are running that but it's different because it's mostly an investment bank and they've sold off and monetize most of the pieces that Joe and Ian had put together. Now it's kind of a pure investment bank. So, yeah, Nick, go ahead.
0: Yeah, I guess one, one other question I had, just looking forward into the future, how companies recruit quality shareholders. Historically, it's been the shareholder letter, uh, all that sort of thing, the annual report. Do you think we're in this 21st century, we've seen Tesla and other companies say we're going to use Twitter for official announcements about our company. Do you think companies should, or, or should change the way they communicate to try to recruit shareholders in this the year
1: 2020? Yeah. And and Twitter or social media may be part of that in in terms of the, um, immediate outreach. I think there, they, some discretion needs to be exercised around that because you, you simply get the, 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 um, the rapid news cycle. I mean, all, all the research that I did and and that others have done that I read indicate that the more, uh, info, the more frequently a company is produced, Producing information, press releases, 8Ks—you know—the the periodic, the, the quick updates. Uh, the more volatile the stock price is, the less um, long-term the, the, the shareholder base tends to be, which just makes a lot of sense. I mean, there, there are a bunch of traders out there who are who are acting on on new information. So the more of it there is, the more likely of you have know, high churn um, in your stock. So I'd be I'd I'd, I'd be be careful uh, using using a lot of Twitter uh, on the other hand I, I think we all do need to migrate to um, platforms and, and, and digital obviously in 2020 we had in 2020 we had essentially no uh, in North America essentially no live annual meetings of shareholders uh, almost everything was was done with uh, virtual platforms and um, before 2020, you had uh, maybe 50 or 80 big companies a year beginning to experiment with that. Intel did it. Duke Energy did it. Um, and uh, I think the results of the the experimenters were, were not bad. Uh, a lot of critics said you, you can't uh, replicate the Uh, in-person feeling, the opportunity to shake hands and look people in the eye and and ask follow-up questions and have breakouts and so on. You you can't do that online. And that was a valid criticism. I I think I I even made it. On the other hand, it it has some advantages. More more shareholders can attend. Uh, The the information tends to be deliverable in a much more uh, efficient and consolidated manner. Uh, and if it's it, technology permits interaction, I mean, it's not really up to the CEO about how many follow-ups and so on that she lets them lets have. So uh, I think pre-2020, the, the sort of um, assessment was mixed. Uh, but after 2020, a lot of the meetings were, were exemplary. I, I, I participated in a few where uh, it was an excellent meeting. So I, I do think whether we, how fast we recover from this pandemic and what restorations we do, I think the digital meeting, the virtual meeting is, is here to stay. And, and the best CEOs who are interested in cultivating a quality shareholder base ought to, ought to you know be, become really good at that and 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 entice uh, long-term committed shareholders uh, on that basis and, and and reach out to them so uh, you know I think I'll, someone mentioned I was on on the board uh, board of constellation we had a, a virtual annual meeting we usually have 400 shareholders uh, about attended in Toronto every year um, uh, digitally we had 600 um, I helped uh, chair the meeting around uh, handling the Q&A. And I thought we got as many or better uh, and better uh, questions than we have ever had. And yeah. I, I sort of chaired the panel in effect and, and I we, we pushed back, I, I and two other analysts. Uh, and I think it was a very good conversation. And in any event we got a lot of positive feedback from the shareholders. So e- even if we could we meet live next year, I think we'll add a, add a virtual piece. But, Nick, I think you're absolutely right that, uh, it, it will pay for corporate leadership to embrace uh, and 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 shape the, how we use this this
2: technology. The Constellations meeting was great. And the way you grouped the questions, the way it involved all the managers answering questions, I, I would make a strong call for Berkshire to do that. Maybe you'd be willing to organize questions for them by topic because I think some of the way they're doing it right now, um, it, it's better than it was prior you don't get all the questions. How do I become a good investor and things like that from somebody's kid that they're holding up there. Um, but, uh, your, your the questions that Consolation got were great. And I think there's some important questions that need to be asked uh, at Berkshire and it would be nice to do a similar thing. And I think, uh, maybe that's something they'll consider going forward. Cause that was, that was great at Constellation the way that worked. So I, I have, uh, two questions left and then I'll let Nick do whatever, uh, he wants, but, um, one of those, you just mentioned Constellation. Mark Leonard's a great CEO. For those of the pe- people listening that have never heard of Constellation Software, it's the best company you've never heard of because it's Canadian. It is a technology company, um, and it's been a wonderful performer. Um, and so it's a great business. Mark Leonard's the, the, the chairman there, I guess. And um, I, I want to ask you, uh, Larry, since you know both of them very well, can you compare and contrast Mark Leonard to Warren Buffett and maybe... What are one or two things they have in common and and one or two things that make them different as leaders of great businesses?
1: Thanks, Buck, yeah. I admire them both uh, immensely and for some of the similar reasons. I'd say in terms of the one or two things they have in common, um, the greatest thing that distinguishes them from others and that they have in common is a very high degree of rationality. They are, uh, is more in command of their kind of uh, emotional, uh responses to things uh, than anybody I know. I mean they get happy and sad and and, and joyous and, and remorseful and stuff. I mean they're human beings. But, but they're able to 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 control that aspect of their thinking and and to really rivet on the um, the substance of, of what's in what's in front of them like no one else I know or have read about. Uh, so at least they're very much up in, in the top Uh, And, you know, the rest of us can learn from that. It's very important to discipline yourself around that, to to be a human being and feel uh, emotions, but at the same time to bracket them when you're making especially a business or capital allocation decision. Uh, And the second thing is is I'd say that they, I'll call it absorption. They are just very good at digesting enormous amounts of information. And that can be from reading, which they both love to do. of of voraciously, Uh, conversations, lectures. Mark is way into digital information platforms and stuff. So they're just very well-read and um, uh, well-rounded. And and it's just a a capacity to digest information and synthesize it. So I could go down because I think that, I mean, the other big thing, I'll I'll name a third. The other thing they have in common that may be most relevant for us is, is that they think about their companies and, and their acquisitions, their investments, and almost every other decision that happens at their companies in terms of capital allocation. Mm-hmm. It's their North Star. They're always, in, in business, they're, it really what you do with every dollar <laughs> yeah. is important. And right. that's how they think. And not every CEO does that. Uh, the, these guys are both trained uh, in the investment uh, world Warren in the old-fashioned kind of uh, uh, merchant acquisition investment mark more in private equity, uh, but uh, on the on the opposite side on the things that they that where they're different, uh, you yeah, know their personalities are quite different. You know Warren has always been a little bit of a showman. Uh, he's an all shucks kind of guy, modest, Midwestern, and so on. But he's welcomed the limelight. He he is very happy to be on television. I don't think he has you know he's attracted the 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 Tens of thousands with enormous festivities and, and really a conscious commitment to having a, a spectacle out of you know he even calls it the Berkshire the Woodstock of capitalists and all that. Uh, I, I think Warren actually uh, is not that he not that he's eager for it, but he's 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 quite okay with the extensive coverage on television. and uh, now the internet and, and books and so on. Uh, Mark is exactly the opposite. Yeah, you know, it wasn't just until a couple of years ago, there was not a photograph of Mark Leonard available on the internet. You, you couldn't find out what he looked like. Uh, these days it's impossible to, to prevent that, but it's still, he's very, very modest, very circumspect. He'd rather sit, and he's not an introvert by any means. He's very social and a lot of fun, uh, but he, he doesn't want the limelight. Uh, you know, someone made a joke. I've got one of one of the new books is called "Dear Shareholder." It's a collection of letters, um, of of CEOs that have attracted a high density of quality shareholders. Sure. And um, so I've got you know, Warren's the dean of that, obviously. Mark Leonard's in there. Uh, Prem Watsa is in there, another Canadian investor at uh, Fairfax Financial Holdings. And I named the book "Dear Shareholders," the best CEO letters from. Warren Buffett to Prem Watson, and a lot of people said, "Well, but Mark is by far a better, you know, more a better track record than Prem. Uh, why didn't you put Mark on there?" I said, "Mark would kill me. <laughs> Mark, Mark doesn't want his name. <laughs> you know, yes. Prem on the other Prem's a little more like Warren. He's, and I love Prem too. He's still he's very happy to have his name. What, yes. So Mark just told, just you know he he um does not want the limelight. Uh, and is not interested in it at all." Uh, and, and I'd say that's the, that's the biggest difference. Um, I mean, another, another obvious difference, is just in terms of their investment scope, Warren has invested throughout industry, across every sector, really, yeah, I mean, he, including tech now and now Japan, Germany, elsewhere. Uh, Mark has been in, in, invested all over the world, but almost entirely in vertical market software, uh, yeah. software companies. Yeah, he, he'd be good going beyond that, but so far, Constellation is exclusively vertical market software. And so what they do every day, how they think, what they have to think about is very different. Uh, you know, the economic um, context, the microeconomic industrial structure of the Berkshire companies are all over the map, <laughs> 40 or 50 of them. So, you know, how, how you think about incentives and um, drivers of managers and stuff, even performance of business is different. Uh, a constellation. It's it's far more similar business to business, uh, and uh, so that that you know I, I don't think I, I don't I don't think that says a ton about the individuals, but I think it might say a little.
2: Yeah, uh, and, and I think for those of us who follow on the outside, and Constellation's, I think made over three hundred acquisitions throughout their time, so they've been even more acquisitive than Berkshire Hathaway has. That I think the skills that Mark Leonard and the team bring to the table will allow them to kind of go outside of that vertical market software area. But they've done so well in that they probably don't want to step out because the economics don't look as attractive other places. So that's great. And we could talk about Constellation for a long time, wonderful business. I want to ask one more. And this is about kind of ESG, the environmental social governance. You've kind of been on the forefront of the governance part of the ESG movement before it was kind of a movement, I would say. Um, This year has had a staggering amount of – um, a kind of uprise, uh, certainly associated with racism, you know, throughout our country. And um, I know, you know, in the early days, Warren Buffett was involved with his first wife Susie on, on a lot of the Martin Luther King things um, and uh, racial equality and even gender equality. And, and we can add that. Um, my question for you is not as a board member of a public company, but also somebody who's a scholar at Berkshire Hathaway and has done all that. What can companies out there do? Um, the NBA players have certainly taken a stand on this and raised awareness of it. But, you know, for instance, you mentioned, I've been at Berkshire meeting uh, just a couple years ago with my son. We walked around 40,000 people there. I didn't see a whole lot of people of color in the audience. There were certainly a lot more Asians that were there than the previous time that I went um, before that. But just, you mentioned online, um, putting the annual letters on there. How do we get the greatness of capitalism and companies out there and make it more approachable for people of color?
1: Yeah, these are profound questions. And I think it some of it does have to start uh, locally and individually. Uh, and um, I think you're, we, the uh, upheaval has stimulated a lot of that kind of ground up individual human beings uh, asking themselves what they could do. And then specific communities, churches, schools, uh, my own university has made a, uh, significant public commitment to, uh, focusing on inclusion, uh, boards of directors, uh, companies more broadly organizations, like the business round table, let's say. And so I think, I think you're seeing a, a heightened consciousness around this, uh, this need. Uh, And I mean, I've done a little bit of it uh, in terms of identifying, um, especially younger uh, women in particular of color and trying to get them into my networks of mostly older, whiter guys uh, who have the keys to the uh, boardroom door. Um, And then I I think, I think you'll see a, a lot more of that. And then as a, as a, policy matter is an intellectual matter um, I, I recently i did a lot of research on board gender diversity uh, and i was um uh focused on this in part as the director of constellation so i was looking in particular at, at canada as so i did a ton of research and i've just published an article but based on the research in the um the canadian business law journal which is a publication at the University of Toronto, uh, focused on gender diversity with a somewhat North American, with a North American bias and kind of a focus on Canada. What I found in the literature was both the, the academic literature and the, and the sort of public advocacy literature were two, two big arguments for increased uh, board gender diversity. And one of them was a social justice, fairness but it's the right thing to do it, it, it just you can't exclude half the population from important functions like this so we ought to just make that cultural change in the name of justice and and doing right and the other argument was an economic argument that said that diversification of boards is associated and some people said cause causes uh enhanced economic performance at, at companies um and there was a lot of rhetoric around that performance connection and as i say some assertions of causation when i when i dug in the literature i found um, the arguments on the social justice aspect to be compelling the economic argument the, the evidence didn't support many of the claims and so i came away from this concluding that it was it's a bad idea for advocates of more gender diversity, and I, I think this is, a, is my hypothesis. This this discussion would apply also to um, uh, minority diversity and and beyond boards. Is it, it's it's not a great idea to make economic arguments that we, we will be richer if we do this, or we will have higher returns on invested capital, or this company will be better, will be a better performer. I, I can see why people made those arguments, but they're they're they've got rhetorical punch, that they can persuade directors who feel like they owe it to the shareholder to deliver high returns to try to get them to, to agree. But since the data doesn't support it, I worry that, that when we appoint a more diverse board and the returns don't bear out, that group's going to be stigmatized. And, yeah. and I, I think that's the worst thing that could happen. So I'd, I, I think the social justice argument is compelling, and I'd elevate it. And I'd say, look, the, the, the economics. I bet there's going to be a random distribution. You know, it's, it's, yeah. every individual is a little stronger or weaker around, you know, it, you know, convincing their colleagues that this is a good or bad acquisition, and so on. Um, so leave that to the side and say it's it just it's correct. It's it's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah.
2: Yeah. That's good. I agree.
0: Yeah. Uh, so, so I've got a couple a couple closing questions first off on, on the ESG question you, you mentioned you serve on multiple boards or vice chairman at, at constellation study this area how do you think that there's this conversation around the move to stakeholder capitalism you mentioned the business roundtable how do you think corporate governance truly is different say 10 years from now versus a lot of these conversations we're having how much do you think is, is implemented and what do you think are, are the changes that we could expect
1: I think that uh, uh, my concern is that the, uh, just as I said a m- minute ago about the, the rhetoric of, of economic outperformance, I'm a little concerned about the rhetoric of a new um, capitalism or stakeholder capitalism or a, a new hierarchy and which constituents count. Uh, and and the, my focal point for that concern is, is the Business Roundtable's mission statement signed last August by 180 or so. CEOs of major companies, um, they, they identified a list of priorities in corporate administration. And what's striking about the list is that it's shareholders at the bottom that starts with employees and then includes customers, communities, and, and shareholders at the bottom. And, and there's a lot of um, news made around how uh, this is a new approach to capitalism. It's, it's not shareholder capitalism, it's stakeholder capitalism. What bothered me about that is that there's actually nothing new in the statement. And um, I think it's misleading to describe it in this as this new thing. Uh, The statement is almost a carbon copy of the 1943 credo adopted by Johnson and Johnson, which is one of the most shareholder capitalist companies in the world. But what they said in 1943 and what they still say now is that the reason we're in business is to provide excellent products for customers, for doctors and patients. And then it's to build a workforce and, and, and train people and, and provide a livelihood and to then to protect our communities and finally to deliver a return to shareholders. And I just think that's how it's always been that in a sh- company earns profit for shareholders by catering to its customers and rewarding its employees. And I, I think a, a, a thoroughgoing embrace of that um, is is fair and fine. And I worry that what the business roundtable did was a little more political uh, than real and that it it d- doesn't add value to the conversation or or, or progress in, in governance, but it's either a bit of a whitewash or a bit of a dodge or a bit of a we're, we're, leave us alone. And so uh, that's my concern around, uh, around it and uh, you know how different or so on it looks. I mean, I, I think the question of um, race and, and and gender is is I think the the highest priority. Maybe that's in the social uh, sector. Um, the the bit about the environmental, I mean, that's a serious concern. Uh, my 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 overall critique of the ESG movement is that you know, we have had um, the in, engagements of this sort throughout American economic history uh, under different labels. Before ESG, it was corporate social responsibility. Before that, the stakeholder model, and and there's there's a lot of um, history to to this endless, and I think it's an endless tension uh, about how much emphasis ought to be put uh, on the bottom line and shareholder returns versus those intermediate lines in terms of revenues and 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 labor costs. And you know, I think we have to continue to have those those conversations. But I guess my big concern is how the current dialogue is dominated by index investors who whose business model is such that they they can really only speak to very high level general propositions. And I think because they own 4000 companies. And so they, they can't really take an informed position about whether a constellation that the chairman and the CEO ought to be different people, uh, or whether it Berkshire, there are too many um, friends and family of Warren Buffett's. So they, 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 they can't do that. So they end up saying all chairs and CEOs need to be split or you need an independent outside. Uh, all boards need to be a majority of independent. And I, I worry about that as in, in corporate governance. I worry about it even more in environmental, maybe even in, in social, where it's just easier for BlackRock. Larry Fink, to say, Here, here's how all companies need to be, because he can't afford to go in and, and, and look individually. So that's my greatest concern, uh, is that the indexers, I mean, the business model is wonderful in a way. Let's deliver the market for, for ordinary people at virtually no cost or risk. Um, but then when they inject themselves in environmental, social governance, and other things, they can only do it wholesale. And um, it, it concerns me. Yeah. Uh, that's one of the motivations for, for the Quality showholder Project too, because I think I think that cohort has better incentives to make tailored recommendations uh, around um, certainly governance, and, and I think it's also true on the social and environmental side. Yes. Yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. Kind of, kind of. Just to conclude us, I had a couple last questions on on, on Warren Buffett. Uh, you know, we're we're at a time now. It seems like every 20 years we get this idea that value value investing is dead, that Warren Buffett has lost it, and, and all that. Where would you put the current narrative around Buffett as compared to to where these discussions have been in the past?
1: I, I think you're exactly right. You, you see this this cyclicality, um, and Warren's one of a kind, and uh, that's he becomes a great target for criticism and. So he, he's contrarian, and people criticize him, like to pretend, like to sort of follow the lead and, and be contrarian too. Um, and it, he's still, rep- so he's, he's iconic and, and a nearly and sui generis. He's in a class by himself. Uh, and even the people who have accepted or, or share the intellectual outlook, long term committed shareholders, are a very small portion of the total population. I'd say. My estimate based on the research is that they represent about 15% of, of ownership of equity capital, the, the quality shareholders do. 40% is by indexers, 40% is by transit, and 5% or so in, in varying combinations is, is held by by activists. So it's a rare and lonely uh, community. It's a small and kind of lonely community. I mean, on the other hand, there's a lot of collegiality and there's a thick ecosystem, and people know each other and tend to see each other part of the reason why Motley Fool has been so successful. Um, and so, but we, and, and we weather the storms. And, and so that whole cohort, uh, well, in 1999, you, you failed here. 2008, you failed here. 2020, you failed here. You know, and the research, I mean, I think this is very interesting. The research on can value st- systematically outperform versus indexing. Uh, is is vibrant. We, we've seen it endlessly. I, I think it's inconclusive. Uh, others draw stronger conclusions about what they've seen in the evidence. Um, uh, but but to be sure, the the relative uh, delta uh, varies over time. And of late, uh, I, I guess uh, the value crowd lags. You know, because the because the fangs have just been so kind of phenomenal. Uh, but you know, where we are, I think it with you know, views of Warren or views of his, the school he represents, uh, do go in, in a bit of an ebb and flow, uh, at least externally. I mean, I think the people, um, people readers of my books, let's say, they, they tend to be steady believers yeah. <laughs> and practitioners, you know, throughout the 25 or so years that I've been doing.
0: Yeah, right, yeah. and that brings me to, my, to my, my last question. Obviously, attitudes throughout Warren Buffett's career of, of whether he's got it right or wrong have fluctuated, but, you know, he's 90 years old. We're, we're looking now back more at his career, more than, than we're looking towards the future, you know, 20, 30 years from now. What do you think is the lasting legacy of Warren Buffett for investors?
1: To me, you know, we started out the conversation uh, identifying four possible answers to that question investment prowess, management prowess, philanthropic generosity, or educator. I'd add a fifth, and I, I think that his greatest achievement, the thing for which he'll be great, great, most greatly remembered, is building a company that was bigger than himself. Again, I'm very bullish on Berkshire Hathaway. I think it'll be here in 30 years. Uh, I may be wrong, but I, I think that certainly uh, he deserves credit for that uh, as you know, he's he poured his ego into Berkshire Hathaway. His his cultural fingerprints are all over it. Um, in terms of modesty, uh, decentralization, thrift, permanence, he's he's designed it, and it's in his image. And yet, four hundred thousand employees, eight hundred subsidiaries, five hundred billions of dollars of assets. Um, this diverse. Massive organization gets all that, and is so big and powerful, and I think um, magnetic uh, that it'll 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 last longer than him. So that's it's partly a prediction, partly a hope because I, I think it's magnificent that he, he was able. I mean, this this company is so distinctive uh, and so special, and so in, just absolutely unusual in, in corporate America uh, that I, I I hope it continues, and, and I think. I think it will, and I think if if it does, uh, that'd be his his lasting uh, legacy. All
0: right, well, Lawrence, thanks thanks you so much for taking the time uh, to to sit with us. If folks want to go find your books, keep track with what you're doing, uh, where can they go find your work?
1: Oh, uh, I guess the best place is uh, my my school, George Washington University. If You put in my name in that, uh, you'll get my bio and links to. I'm running an initiative on the quality shareholder program. Um, you'll get li- links to a lot of the literature around that. And uh, I've got, obviously, lots of books for sale on Amazon. And lots of my articles uh, are free uh, on on my on the SSRN. But uh, so I, I think just Googling my name uh, will, will yield plenty of avenues. Great.
2: Well, thank you very much. We appreciate it, Larry. It was great catching up again. We appreciate all your insights on Berkshire Hathaway and social governance and all that kind of stuff. Um, Have a wonderful rest of your summer and a great school year, whether it be virtual or whatever else. And hopefully we'll see you at a Berkshire
0: Hathaway annual meeting um, in the near future in person. Always a pleasure. Thank you both very much. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Steve Broido for mixing the show. For Buck Hartzell and Lawrence Cunningham, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening and Fool on.